0: Paul talking about partnership with the Philippian church, and the whole way throughout the book, he gives lots of things to be thankful for. So before we get into the sermon, this isn't the sermon yet, Uh, before we get into the sermon, um, I just want to pick up on a couple of things to encourage you with and to encourage us with as a church. And And the first one is actually it's really fitting that John was just reading the Bible. A number of weeks ago, we put out a challenge, and that challenge was a hospitality challenge to invite some people over for dinner and a service challenge, and the other day, John was telling me that they invited a few people over for dinner, and how well it went, just helping to reconnect people, and whatever, so I reckon we should show our encouragement, and appreciation, yeah, you can do that, come on, (laughs) guys, that seems like such a small thing, doesn't it? But in the busyness of life, we really need to be intentional about those things. We really need to celebrate those things and and say, well done. Um, So great work for doing that, John and Cal. And the other thing is as well, that um, just heaps of courage like today. um, So many of you got into the gathering early. I don't know if you know or not, but one of the things that helps to encourage you, particularly when you're singing and coming to hear the Word of God and whatever, it's actually each other's presence and your presence, and uh, your presence here in the gathering early so that we're all ready to sing together, and, um, and that's not because we want to start on time and run an uberschmick um, gathering, um, but because it really is an encouragement to us, and I was really encouraged by you guys today. There's something that we're doing to help you in this, and I'm not sure if you've noticed or not, but... Outside, we've got a speaker, and each week, there's going to be the same music that plays after the timer, and uh, hopefully over time, that music will prompt you um, to love one another uh, by coming into the gathering and uh, being ready to worship uh, God together. So, well done. You guys can encourage each other by going, well done. Yeah, come on. This is a book of joy and encouragement. We need to do that. And then the last thing um, is probably a little bit, uh, a little bit more... Um, a little bit more detailed, and it's to do with our finances at Established Church. Uh, we partner in this together, and uh, there are a couple of things that we should really give thanks to God for. Uh, we're going to be doing this uh, semi regularly and just starting to talk a bit more regularly about money at church, and primarily so that we can give thanks to God for the way that He provides for us. And, uh, and I have some good news. Uh, the good news is this that um, for the month of January, uh, we had uh, 14,020. Dollars come in. We've uh, exceeded our external budget coming in, and uh, and we've seen an increase in our internal budget. My apologies, there's no fancy graphs because I'm not a mathematician. They'll come to you in another way um, soon, Uh, so hopefully you can hold this information. Um, But really, we saw an increase in our internal giving by $700 from the month of December, um, which is actually really, really brilliant. Um, We ended up at the beginning of the year with probably around about Two months uh, worth of about 1.8 months or whatever worth of uh, bills in the account after having a, a significant slump last year. that's something that we should be giving thanks um, to God for. Um, so we've seen around about 86 and a half percent of our budget come in for January. That is the good news, and we're going to stop, and we're going to pray for that in a moment and give thanks to God um, for that. And the other thing about our finances is uh, internally in January, that's actually really brilliant. It's actually really, really good. Uh, but if we're going to make sure that we don't you know, eat into that money that we've got there uh, to make sure that we can pay the bills and whatever, and we need to see about another $2,500 coming in per month at Establish, uh, which is not a big amount of money, um, and it's not something that we need to worry about or anything at this point, but we do need to start praying about it, and we do need to start acting It because if you've got the numbers right 34,000, two and a half grand over the 12 months, then you can see how we'd end up chumping into that a little bit. Um, But I'm convinced that we'll not get there because we're partnering together. So I just want to ask you to pray and prayerfully consider that if you're not giving at Established Church, uh, that that's something that you start doing and that that's something that you start doing in worship of our great God as we partner together. In the gospel, um, but I'm going to pray and give thanks for some of those things, and then we're going to get into it. Do you want to pray with me? Yes, you do, don't you? You do. Yes. Right. Well, let's pray. Um, Father God, I thank you um, so much for the joy that it is to partner in the gospel with one another at established church. Father God, I thank you so much that you are a God who provides all things for us, and that you call us and um, to give of the things that you have given us, particularly of our money, um, so that we might partner with you in seeing the gospel going out to the ends of the earth. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege that, that is to partner with you in that work. And we ask, Lord God, that um, you help us to be thankful and filled with joy for what we've seen already in the month of January. And I ask, Father, that you help us to pray with great expectation and humbleness and faith and um, for the things that you will do and for the way in which you will provide for us. Lord, we are so thankful for last year and that you brought us through some hardship so that we might see the joy of what it looks like for you to provide for us. Father, I pray that that will give us a good foundation for 2020 so that we might worship you all the more. Amen. Um, I first met B at a Christian Union event in England, and uh, essentially she was standing up on stage. And she said, hi, my name is B, and basically I eat dog. And uh, you're meant to laugh at that. And she was making a joke, B's from South Korea. And uh, she became a Christian in Seoul. And, and basically before Marie, Con- Marie Kondo like, made it a thing, and um, she was the person who sparked joy everywhere that she went, right? And it wasn't through neatly arranged drawers and listening to inanimate objects or anything like that. It was through something else entirely. Something that you might not expect, actually. When she became a Christian, um, it brought great shame on her family uh, to the point where her parents tried to stop her from going to church. But she had just met Christ, so she didn't stop going to church. Then they tried to stop her to going to Bible study in her small group. But she had started to experience what it looked like to partnership with other Christians to actually have Christian community. And so she didn't stop going to gospel community or to her small group Bible study. Then one day when she came walking in home, her father grabs her by the scruff, forces her up against the wall, grabs a knife and presses it up against her throat urges her to renounce Jesus, to give up her faith. Now I'm not sure what she said to her father, but you can imagine, can't you, the pain, the anguish, the confusion, the fear, as she would have looked lovingly into her father's eyes. And defiantly said nothing. You can imagine what that would be like, couldn't you? Well, for B, it was tough. It was traumatic. It wasn't easy by any stretch of the imagination. But you know the surprising thing about that situation for B, that didn't become a source for her to jeer at God and to be scathing towards him, it actually served to become a source of joy for her. And in fact, it was a joy that was just infectious and to everybody that she would meet. Now, I've got a question for you. How do you get that kind of joy? How do you respond to hard situations like that where you can have a joy that might even stand up against the most hard situations for the gospel. How do we do that? How do you do that? Well, I reckon we get a pretty good example and a couple of answers as we look at this passage that we just read out and from the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1, 12 to 30. And because essentially what Paul is doing here is he's writing to a church that's experiencing hardship for the sake of the gospel, and he's asking or he's showing them some things because he wants them to progress and have joy in the faith. And we believe, don't we, that these aren't words just to the Philippians from God, from Paul, but actually from God, they're words to us as well. So I reckon embedded in this, we see some really good truth bombs about how we might have joy in the faith. You see, Paul here, he's writing from prison in Rome, and uh, it wouldn't have been just physically tough for Paul, it actually also would have been emotionally and mentally tough for him as well, because you see, what was going on was that Paul's reputation was being dragged through the dirt, essentially. And many, many people were, were trying to drag God through the dirt as they were dragging Paul through the dirt, because Paul was going to be the guy who would take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He was the person that many people were hanging their hopes on, and many of them would have been starting to doubt that the Great Commission would ever happen, that somehow Paul screwed up. And for them, seeing Paul in chains in a Roman prison pretty much probably meant that they just thought that the gospel was in chains. And not only that, Paul's plans kind of took a hit, right? Because you see, Paul had planned that he would be the person that would end up going to Spain and, and he would end up taking the gospel to the rest of, of Europe and maybe be sitting on the Valencian coast with you know an Instagram picture and hashtag all the fields and all of that kind of stuff. But instead, his life goals, his dreams are dashed. And you know the really surprising thing when you read through Rome or read through Philippians is that Paul doesn't respond to this situation by, you know, going, life sucks. Hashtag plans dashed. But he says something else, doesn't he? He takes this metaphorical picture of him in jail and he says, hashtag life goals. Great commission goals. Joy and even rejoicing. Like, did you see, did you hear when, Paul, or when John was reading through how many times he actually said the word rejoicing? Like, how the heck do you do that? Why can he come up with that kind of conclusion after everything that had just happened to him? Well, the first reason I reckon we see very, very clearly, have a look at the first verse, number 12. Here's what he says. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Paul has joy and hardship because he sees that it advances the gospel. What has been going on here is that some of, in fact, many of the palace guard had become confident in the Lord, which is really just code language to say that they had put their trust in Jesus. They knew that Paul was in chains for Christ, probably because they had heard the charge, right? Everybody would have said, oh, that bloke, he's in chains for this reason. But more than likely, they knew that he was in chains for the gospel because Paul was proclaiming the gospel to them. He was in prison, and do you know what that meant? That meant that he had a captive audience, right? People couldn't get away. He was chained day and night to a soldier who had to give up, who had to kind of give up and and just listen to his Jesus talk. He was proclaiming the gospel to them. And many of them became Christians. But more than that, the gospel didn't just advance in number. It actually advanced in their hearts, didn't it? It actually advanced in their hearts to the point where they too ended up going and proclaiming the gospel. And do you see what it says there? Without fear. Like that's crazy, isn't it? Of all people, these guys would have known the consequences for proclaiming the gospel. They were with Paul day and night when he was chained for the gospel, but yet something changed in them where the gospel advanced and advanced in their hearts to such a point where they were able to proclaim that same gospel message without fear. And although others might have preached out of selfish rivalry and envy and, and tried to stir up trouble for Paul and and all of that kind of stuff, the thing that Paul was rejoicing about was that regardless, the gospel of Jesus was being proclaimed, and he knew that if the gospel of Jesus was being proclaimed, that the gospel was advancing, that it wasn't in chains. Now, we tend to see hardship, don't we, as something that chains us, as something that restricts us. When we watch the news, you know, and maybe a bit of Q&A or something like that, where you've got Christians on there, and they're, they're starting to talk about Christianity. When we see that, and when we hear that, and we see that the people on there's mouths are chained, we believe, don't we, that the gospel's chained. It's hard not to feel like the gospel's chained when we experience moments like that, is it? When you try to say that you're a Christian at work, and people sneer at you or just ignore you, it's hard not to think that the gospel is chained. When you mess up, like I've done many, many times in a conversation where I'm trying to convince somebody that Jesus is really worth following, and I, and I just come up against it time and time again, it's hard to believe that the gospel's not in chains. When you hear cultural critics slamming the church, Slamming Christianity, basically saying, look, we're becoming more and more secular. Less and less people are becoming Christians. It's just all going to pot. We're pretty much a post-Christian country, and we shouldn't ever worry about it anymore. When we hear that, it's hard, isn't it? To believe that the gospel is not in chains. That it's not powerful enough. That it's not strong enough, even for us. But established church, What do we learn from Paul here? We learn that God uses hardship for the gospel because it advances the gospel. We learn that the hardship that we might experience, which is probably nothing compared to Paul, is never in vain because it's used as a means by God to actually see the gospel go out. Our chains, whatever they may be, however they may look like, for you, when it comes to the gospel, never, ever, ever means that the gospel is chained. Even though you might not see it. You know, Paul actually had the privilege here, didn't he, of seeing many people becoming Christians and seeing them going out and proclaiming the gospel. We don't always get that. We don't always know the timing when God might actually do that in and through us. But we can be confident that God does use that and advances the gospel. He advances it in your heart when you go through hardship, and he advances it in the hearts of others. It could be your kids, your family, your work colleagues, your mates, even your enemies and the people that you might least expect. Because you see, the gospel is advanced through hardship. And, and you know what? That's actually the way that it's always been, right? If you've got any kind of understanding of the story of the Bible, you know that the Israelites were exiled to Babylon, did that stop the message of God and the plans of God from going out any farther? Did it? Did it? I want to hear a big no. No, it didn't. It actually served to advance the gospel into places, or with the gospel of God at that time, into places where it had never been. When the Christians were persecuted in Jerusalem at the time of the early church, and you even had Stephen who was stoned to death, Did it stop the gospel? No, it didn't. It actually served to advance the gospel because the gospel went from there and it went out to the Gentiles and it went to Paul and we all know what happens with Paul, right? He ends up in prison. And even in his chains, the gospel is not chained. And we know what happened from Rome, don't we? The gospel eventually makes its way to Australia. You know, B... And her hardship actually didn't end when her father held the knife up at her throat and called her to renounce Jesus. And actually what happened was that they decided that what they would do is that they would send B to another country to go to university. um, Because they thought, hey, if we send her away, this whole Jesus thing will just fizzle out and it'll, it'll, you know, it's just a fad, it's just a phase. uh, But instead of sending her to a Buddhist country or to an Islamic country or to a country that was atheist, they thought that the best course of action was to send her to a secular Christian country because they knew that in a secular Christian country, you went to church when you were born, when you got married, and then when you died, right? Now, it was a pretty good plan because that pretty much is the way that it works out. But instead, and what happened was, they sent her to England, which is more post-Christian than Australia, and straight away, pretty much within about a week, she finds an evangelical church in Cheltenham. And when she tells this story, she tells it with a grin on her face. Then we picked her up in, in uh, Hull in England, and where she was studying, and when we saw her there, she was proclaiming the gospel, she was she was meeting with people one-to-one, reading the Bible. She lived along with Catherine, my wife, for a little while. She was just a spark of joy. Um, and a lot of that came through the suffering and the persecution that she had endured. But do you know what? As we watched her, we were actually encouraged to face hardship for the gospel. Especially when we saw her going back. Get this. Going back to her parents every holiday. imagine what it must have taken for her to go back and see her father to show that she had not renounced jesus and but rather she was involved in proclaiming jesus and presenting jesus to the people around her now over time guess what happened her sister became a christian her father and mother have not become Christians yet, but they've softened to the gospel and she's still regularly, regularly praying for them. Established church, we can have joy in hardships. You can have joy in hardships because we know that where we might be chained, we know that where we might be hard up against the wall, that the gospel never is. Nothing chains the gospel. And because of that, we should rejoice. But I know what you're thinking. It's still pretty hard, right? Absolutely it is. It's hard for us to rejoice. And it's hard for us to rejoice if we don't get this next little bit that Paul talks about here where we see that that we can have joy and hardship because it produces deliverance. But here's the trick. That deliverance is not really what we think, right? Have a look at verse 18b. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice for I know that through your prayers or your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will will turn out for my deliverance. Now, what does Paul mean here? Because it's not what we think, right? He's not necessarily saying, hey, you know what? You guys are praying for me. I've got the Holy Spirit. I'm going to get out of prison. Boom. He's not saying that. He's not necessarily saying that his hardship will come to an end. No, because you see, for Paul, his joy is not based on his circumstances. In fact, I want you to get this. Joy for Paul, joy in Philippians, it is something that is not based on circumstance, but it's rather is based on a deep confidence in God that no matter what situation you find yourself in, that God will use that situation for good and that you can trust him in that when you're facing hardship for the gospel. It's a joy that's built on truth. Regardless of hardship. Now we're talking here quite specifically about hardship for the gospel. Not necessarily general hardship. And one of the things when I think about this, I just go, oh man. Yeah, that just means that God's, he's kind of just caring about his cosmic plan. And because he's caring about his cosmic plan, he doesn't really care about his personal plan. Or my personal plan. Do you ever feel that way? I feel that way. It's all about this big kind of like Uber mission. And it's not really about me. It is that. But actually, you know what? God advances the gospel in Paul's heart. God does this for, for Paul's personal good. To grow him to be more like Jesus. And the joy that Paul experiences here is a joy that he can give himself fully in trust to God's plan. That it'll actually turn out for his deliverance or his salvation. And that actually doesn't matter for Paul if it's a salvation that makes him more like Jesus in this world or if it's a salvation because he meets Jesus in the next. That actually doesn't matter for him. Now, in case you're wondering what's going on with that salvation word, there's essentially three ways In the New Testament, that we get the word salvation, right? The first is um, that when we're plucked from uh, death into life, as we repent of our sin and put our trust in Jesus, that we are saved at that point. We are no longer enemies of God and we become friends of God. We have salvation. But then there's another two ways that the New Testament talks about it. The next one is um, where it talks about us being saved. And that is essentially kind of like being saved from the shackles and the chains of our ongoing problem with sin. A biblical word is sanctification, where we're actually being made more like Jesus, but it can talk about us having salvation, that we are being saved from that continually. It's not that this salvation is kind of up for grabs, that's kind of done and dusted when you trust in Jesus. Jesus but this is a bit more of an ongoing thing. And then the last salvation that you get and talked about in the gospel is that when you will ultimately um, meet Jesus, you will ultimately be saved. Now, it's a little bit like um, if I was drowning out in Beit Bay, Bay, I'm just going to drop that bomb there. And um, right now, if I was drowning out there and uh, one of the lifeguards came out to me paddling out in their speedos and their kind of like little uh, thing, whatever it is, and they pull me onto their, their speed ski. Um, I'm saved at that point, Anna. Yes? Yes? Tell me if I'm wrong. I'm saved at that point. I, I've, I'm stopping drowning. As we're going back in the shore, I'm being saved, Anna, because I'm not actually fully, like, like, like it, I'm not fully back to safety. And then when I'm on the shore, when I'm in kind of getting my warm shower, reminiscing about the awesome story that I had of near, de- near drowning, um, at that point, I can say that I am saved. And when I'm on that little jet ski, I can think about me being saved and, and, and eventually being saved. I will be saved. you get it? Three different ways that it's talking about salvation here. Now, for Paul, it's most likely that he's talking about those last two ways of salvation. And for him, it doesn't really matter which one happens. None whatsoever, right? Because he says whether by death or whether by life or by death at the end of verse 20. You see, the most important thing for Paul is in all of this, that Christ is the one who is exalted, that he is the one who is glorified through his hardship, regardless of his outcome. And he knows that that if he lives, right? Get this. If he lives, he's going to be made more like Jesus. How good is that? And he'll continue to rejoice, even though he might face many, many more hardships. And if he dies... Then he'll be with the one who endured the ultimate hardship for him, right? He'll be the one with the one who humbled himself to become a servant. He'll be the one who gave himself up even in obedience to God upon death on a cross for Paul. See, he's going to be sweet. So for Paul, right? Joy and hardship doesn't really come through just getting out of hardship, it doesn't. It comes from something entirely different. It comes from a knowledge, not, not just an understanding, like as in, you know, one plus one equals two, but a deep knowledge that even in hardship, the spirit of God will work and continue the work that he started in him. Like how good is that? It comes through a truth that he has experienced time and time again that, that, that God, the God that he followed, actually experienced hardship for him. And that means that he understands that hardship. It comes from a mindset that basically says, regardless of the outcome of my hardship, the most important thing is that Jesus is exalted. And I know that if that's the most important thing, that he will take care of me. As long as he's glorified in my body, it doesn't matter. But this is why Paul can say, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Now, that little line, that's deliverance, isn't it? That's freedom. If you can truly say that, you're free, aren't you? You're free because it doesn't matter what the consequence is. Do you want to be able to have that kind of confidence, established church? Do you want to be able to have that kind of joy in your Christian life? to live a life where you can have joy regardless of the hardship that you might face for following Jesus. To say what Paul says here in such a way that that actually removes anxiety about the future. Because you know that the God who made you, loves you, and he will continue his work in you to the end. Here's the thing established. I, I know that you want that. I know that you want that deeper and more and more like I do. But here's the thing. That kind of joy is not found in comfort. It's forged in chains. That kind of joy is not found in comfort. It's forged in chains. And my fear is for you, my fear for me, my fear for Christians in Australia is that we live in a world, don't we, that essentially says that all hardship is bad that it should be avoided. We actually live in a Christian culture and that it's been hugely influenced by that and believes that if we follow Jesus, then we will avoid hardship, even though we kind of read everywhere in the New Testament that that's not the case. We wouldn't really say it, but the way that we live kind of shows that. We barter with God. We kind of go, hey, God, I've sacrificed stuff for you. You know, like you got to give me a little bit here. Make it a bit easier at work. Make it easier in my family when I talk to them about Jesus. We, we deserve that, right? A culture that says that if, as long as we as a church, you know, like, like live this uber good Christian life that everybody in our community will give us a high five because we've made their community better. And I believe the gospel does make things better for everybody. Absolutely. But that often comes with hardship. A culture that says that if we follow Jesus and we're part of a church that's seeing the gospel proclaimed and and presented that you should never have any niggles in church or never have any disagreements or any hardship relationally or even just vision ways or with money or with whatever. That's not true. You know what our culture says? And, And this is what you guys are up against. This is what we're up against. This is what I'm up against. Here's what our culture says. For me to live is comfort, not Christ. For me to live is comfort, not Christ. And guys, that's especially so in the Shire. That's something I've observed all around the world, but particularly here for the last 14 years that I've been in this in this beautiful part of the world. And it would be really, really silly for you. It would be really, really silly for me to think that that doesn't kind of start to Muddy in our own hearts, right? Because you see, this kind of thing stops us from being people who present Jesus, stops us from standing out to be different, stops us from from presenting Jesus to people around us in the way that we deal with our hardship, stops us from setting examples to one another as we face hardship for the gospel that actually sparks joy in other people and for them to actually proclaim the gospel without fear. And ultimately, it stops us from having real joy, doesn't it? A joy that can say, but for me to live is Christ. But to die is gain. That's deliverance. Instead, we say, for me to live is comfort, not Christ. For me to live is success, not Christ. For me to live is to compartmentalize, make sure my life's all neat and everything's all in order, not Christ." For me to live as my family, not Christ. For me to live as my relationships, not Christ. My home, my job, my partner. Insert absolutely anything that you want in there because I assure you, I've inserted them all in my heart. But if we want to experience real joy, it's not found in comfort, established church. It's forged in chains. Which we still find hard, don't we? Until we see this last reason, well, I think we still find it hard even with this last reason, but, um, but bear with me. Um, the last reason, because it has been granted. Have a look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Like what the heck did Paul just say there? Did you think about that when, Paul, when John was reading it out before? That he has granted for us that we might believe and that we might suffer. Surely Paul can't mean that. Come on, we're called to Jesus to have life. And we don't think life and suffering kind of match, do they? Surely he can't mean that the suffering that he was going through was granted to him by God. The suffering that the Philippians were going through was granted to him by God. The suffering and the hardship that we might go through for the gospel in Australia, at established church, in the shire, in our workplaces, has been granted to us. Surely, he can't mean that. You see, the word granted here, right, is it's funny. Um, because It's not funny at all, actually. Um, it's the same word that he uses when he talks about God and the Holy Spirit actually giving us spiritual gifts to build up the church. The word granted isn't just, you know, I grant thee. It's, it's actually like a really, really good gift like a good thing to build up the church and to build up you. So when we understand that word, it gets a little bit more difficult because what it's saying here is that God graciously gives you a good gift of allowing you to experience hardship for the gospel. Which begs the question, why, doesn't it? Why the heck is that there? Let's see if we can tie things up a little bit and pull them in a little bit. Well, I think it's in part of the stuff that we've already said, right? I think he gives us the gift of suffering for the gospel because as we face that suffering and, and as we do that with joy, we see that God uses that to advance the gospel. It advances it actually in our own hearts and it advances it in the hearts of others and it advances it beyond that even more. We get to see the gospel advance as people come uh, to believe in Jesus. We get to see the gospel advance as we encourage one another as we walk through hardship. Like, can you imagine the kind of joy that B would have experienced knowing that she had encouraged nearly like a whole Christian union every time that she went back to her family and presumably talked to them about Jesus. And we were there in like England where we didn't really have that many worries. That would have brought her joy, wouldn't it? I think God grants us this hardship as a way to forge in us something that couldn't really be found in anything other but chains, really. In fact, I think that unless we have some of the hardship that we see that Paul is going through here, not exactly but hardship for the gospel, I think it's actually going to be really hard for us to say, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain, and then here's the thing, to know that these times aren't haphazard is pretty encouraging. It's still hard, but it's encouraging, right? To know that because this has been given or granted to us as a gift from God, that it's not just some random thing that's happening to us, that it's something that's entirely within the control and the will of God for your life. That ought to instill in us a confidence established church. That God would even use those moments to make you more like Jesus it ought to be something that brings joy. That in and through them, that He will bring to completion the work that He has done in your hearts. And I want you to know this God is not just concerned about this cosmic plan and score sheet, right? He does want the gospel to go to all nations. He does want it to to spread and to spread and to do what he planned for that to do. But he is also concerned about you. He is also concerned that the gospel will continue to advance in your heart. And because of that, he allows you to experience hardship for the gospel. Do, Do you get that established church? This is why Paul says that hardship for the gospel essentially acts as a sign to you that you are being saved by God. That's what's going on there. That you're being made more like Jesus. And I tell you what, if you're anything like me, um, I tend to pray more, spend more time with God, read my Bible more, go to church more when I'm going through hardship for the gospel than I do when I'm going through comfort. The other day, I heard a Japanese pastor, Yoshito hopefully i pronounced that right, Yoshito Noguchi, preached at a conference, and uh, he was essentially sharing about the hardship that they faced as they planted a church in Japan, one of the most um, de-churched atheist countries in the world. And uh, in a powerful sermon, he essentially called people, right, get this, he called people not to turn away from hardship, but to turn to it. He encouraged them not to turn away from hardship, but to actually expect it and to face it. And there was one thing that he said, that really, really just stuck in my brain, and I I think I'm going to remember this forever, right? He said, if you're going to avoid hardship and persecution, talking about for the gospel here, you can do that. Here's how you can do it. You can do it by making your heart numb. Or by living for comfort. Those are my words. His is the numb word. And then here's what he said next. If you're going to do that, your heart is going to die. If you're going to do that, if you're going to live for comfort and not Christ, if you're going to numb your heart, your heart is going to die. We need to remain in the difficulties and the trials. Now, why did he say that? Why did he say that? Why did they say that? Because here are people, right, who know that there is joy to be had in hardship because they've experienced it. They know that there's joy to be had in hardship because it advances the gospel. They know that there's joy to be had in hardship because it brings deliverance for them. That means that regardless of whether or not they live or they die, God's plan will still come to fruition. And they know that because they know that it's actually been something that has been granted to them by God for their growth. Establish church. You want to have a life where you lack joy, do you? If you do, live for comfort. Avoid hardship. Avoid standing out. Avoid proclaiming and presenting Jesus. Let yourself just make compromises and drift. Don't push through trials. Don't help one another and pray for each other when you're going through it. Allow resentment to build up in your heart because of the, the hardship that you might be going through in your community. Avoid using your gifts to serve God. Avoid giving your time and sacrificing your money. Instead, actually, do you know what? Just do the bare minimum. Do that. Just do Jesus equals comfort. That's one way to lack joy. Just do the what I call the shy or Christian thing. And then slowly your heart will become numb. Your joy will start to dissipate. Your heart for Jesus will start to fade. Your love and desire to be in any kind of Christian community will just go. And the gospel will die. Your heart will die. Now, I know that you don't want that. Absolutely, I know that you don't want that. You don't want to live that way. You actually want to have joy in your hearts, don't you? You want to be able to have this kind of joy that that Paul has. Well, if you want that kind of joy, then we need to remain in the difficulties and the trials. We need to actually keep on giving ourselves up to Jesus, and as we do that, and as we stand in that, that will advance the gospel, that will bring us deliverance, and that will actually enable us to see that this has been granted by God to us for our good. Because you know what, right? I just want to finish with this. Christ didn't consider his own comfort, did he? When he made himself nothing for us, he didn't consider himself his His own comfort when he humbled himself by becoming obedient obedient even to death on the cross. So why should we seek ours? Rather seek Christ. Put him as number one in absolutely everything. Make him the main thing that you're on about. Make it that Christ is the person who is glorified in all of your life. And do that and you're going to have joy and hardship. Because you know what established church? For you to live as Christ, but to die is gain. For you to live as Christ, but to die is only gain. Father God, while you give us some hard words, Holy Spirit, you challenge us and rebuke us, but I pray, Lord God, that you help us today not to be leaving here crushed and discouraged but rather encourage that, that you do and you will continue the work that you have started within us, that we will be saved, that we are being saved. And Lord God, I pray that you will bring comfort, speak words of comfort and hope on people here tonight who are experiencing real hardship for the sake of you, even if that's in working out how they might believe in you. And Lord God, I pray that you will show them who you are, for them and you love them and you long for them to have a joy in all of life for your glory.